Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Before we get started, as always, if you haven't yet, please take this moment and subscribe to our pod. You will not regret it. On today's episode, we are talking with Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Flora Hassan Nahum. Flora's experience is so interesting, and we'll get into all of that in the conversation. But something that makes it so inspiring to me is that it follows the path that so many of the people we consider to be the fourth fathers of Zionism followed. She was raised in Europe, she attended university, became a successful lawyer, and decided to leave it all behind in the pursuit of finding a better life in Israel. Since then, she's risen to the challenge in the homeland, representing strong female leadership at the top of Israeli politics. When we talk about stories like this, we really only talk about the four fathers. We all know the stories of Herzl and Ben-Gurion, but what about the women today who are changing Israeli society? What about the women who are fostering a new generation of equality in our most holy place? In having this conversation with Flora today, I want to dive into how her path paints the way she views the larger Jewish world. How does a childhood spent in diaspora make her view of diaspora Judaism different from other Israelis? How does making Aliyah make her view of Israeli Judaism different from other Jews born in diaspora? I'm so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Flora Hassan Nahum is the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem for Foreign Relations, Economic Development, and Tourism. As Deputy Mayor, Fleur is involved in the advancement of women's rights and immigration population groups in the city, in developing better employment and high-tech ecosystems in the city, and in the fight for a pluralistic Jerusalem. Fleur founded a groundbreaking and successful program for advancing women in high-tech and is the first Israeli to speak at the UN representing the city of Jerusalem. Fleur is also the co-founder of the UAE Israel Business Council and the Gulf Israel Women's Forum amongst the first and largest organizations to have been created to advance the Abraham Accords. Fleur was voted one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world, regularly defends Israel online and in the press, and represents Israel and Jerusalem around the world. Fleur, it's such an honor to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, thanks so much for inviting me. I, I follow you guys. It's fantastic what you're doing. It's mutual, very much likewise. Thank you so much. Uh, let's let's get right into it. I'm very excited for this conversation today. So can you tell us a bit about where you're from originally? Yes, um, I'm from a little British protectorate, because apparently I'm not allowed to say colony anymore, uh, called Gibraltar, which is in southern Spain. It's in the sort of southernmost tip of the Iberian Peninsula, right opposite Morocco. Um, and like I said, it's British. And my family, actually, are Jews from Spain originally, mm-hmm. who've been there for 350 years. Wow. So that's how far we can trace back our lineage in Gibraltar. And before that, of course, Spain. And it's a wonderful place. Uh, it's a place of real diversity and coexistence, you know, where it's a majority Catholic country, but Jews live there, Hindus, Muslims, <clears throat> and everybody lives in relative peace. And so... That's the place that I come from. And of course, I come from a, a very close-knit Jewish community. Um, and I come from a background where my father was also in politics. And so, yeah, that's, that's basically where I come from. And as a result, I speak also uh, Spanish as well as English as mother tongue. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. My my mom's family is also um, Sephardic Jews, um, but they went east instead of staying in the west. So Where are they from originally? Those are from Spain? From Spain. And then they went kind of around to um, some from Yemen, but they were different place and then there were some from Yugoslavia some from Greece that kind of went all over the diaspora yeah so you talked a bit about how your background influenced your life and your father being a politician but how did Judaism influence you as a child I don't know whether I can separate myself from being Jewish do you know what I mean it's like one of those things how did Judaism influence me I'm a Jew um that's that's what I am probably before anything else um when I think about my identity and so it's kind of all-encompassing. What's nice about being Jewish in Gibraltar is, first of all, that Jews have been amongst the first settlers of Gibraltar, which means it's not like we were immigrants and we came in and anybody can say, oh, you know, at all. We were, you know, one of the first people there. So we're very organic to the place. Mm-hmm. And it never, you never feel kind of left out. I never felt like a minority, even though I knew I was a minority. And of course, the fact that you're Jewish means you live in a small town in an even smaller community. So the community is a microcosm of the town. Mm. And uh, everything is kind of very uh, close-knit around you, your school, your synagogue. Um, and so growing up Jewish was growing up in a small community, in a, in a small, smaller community in a small town. I guess that's the best way to describe it. And of course, it's it's one of the major parts of my identity. I can't really separate myself from that. Absolutely. Um, And you've since then made the decision to make Aliyah. So what went into that decision to move to Israel? So that's interesting because, you know, I grew up in Gibraltar. The first time I came to Israel was when I was 14 years old. I came to my cousin's wedding and I just fell in love with the place. I just thought to myself, my God, after 2,000 years of Jews being in exile, of so much suffering, of so much discrimination, of pogroms, of holocaust, of all of that. And now we're living in these miraculous times where Jews have self-determination, where Jews can decide what their own destiny is, um, where we have this autonomy. And from the moment that I was in Israel, I kind of, there was something inside me that knew that I was gonna come back and that I was gonna settle there. And so, you know, when I came back from Israel, I started reading all these books about Israel. I read Golda Meir's autobiography. I started understanding the history, which is, you know, apart from the fact that we have this land, its history is it's just incredible. The modern history of Israel is, is something out of, a, out of a Hollywood movie, really. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I, be, I began to kind of become connected to Israel. And then I started coming, when I was in college, I started coming every summer. I did a stint in Hebrew University also, summers, mm-hmm. uh, learning Hebrew, uh, learning all sorts of things about Jewish history. And then I went back to England. I mean, I studied in England when I was 18. I went to England and I I began my law degree there. I was living in the UK for nine years. And at some point um, when I was doing my stage, I met, somebody introduced me to my husband. And on, I think the second day, he says to me, listen, I have to tell you, I have to be honest, I don't want to stay here. Mm. Uh, I said, well, guess what? Neither do I. So... We had basically, I mean, I'd found a man who was as passionate about Israel as I was, Zionistic mm. about Israel. Um, and, you know, it, which is very important because I have so many friends who marry a people who they're not all on the same page about Israel. And what happens is they come here and one of them's not happy. One of them always wants to go back. And it's, it's miserable for one of them, whoever yeah. it is that doesn't want to be here or who does want to be here. 
Um, and so, thank God I didn't have that because my husband and I were both as determined as each other to come and move to Israel. And we got the chance to do so after we were married for two years. And we came here without kids. We didn't want to have kids and then schlep them here. Mm-hmm. And that's the best thing we did. But we decided to come. And we got married in 98. And we decided to come in, in early 2001. Uh, but what happens in 2001? The second intifada breaks out. And so our families are telling us, are you nuts? You're going to come to Israel now, and there are, especially Jerusalem, when there are bombs going off in buses, in restaurants. Literally, it was an every week occurrence. But we were so determined to come to Jerusalem and we were so determined to come to Israel, we just put our faith and, you know, closed our eyes, <laughs> got on the plane. And we've been here for 20 years. This March, we celebrated 20 years in the country. Four our four kids were born here. Um, and, and that's really how I got here. And I, and I think the best gift I could give my kids is for them to be Israeli born. And I'm very proud of that. It's an incredible story. Um, and you talk about growing up in a really particular community um, in Gibraltar, where you are a minority, but you also are a really integral part of the fabric of the culture there. Yes. How has that experience shifted since you moved to Israel, where Jews aren't the minority anymore? It's really the only place in the world where we aren't. How has that relationship changed as your environment changed? That's a really insightful question, because what I feel about Israelis is that they don't understand the diaspora mainly because they don't understand what it is to live in a minority outside of Israel, unless they've gone and lived there. And then, and then they change. It's really incredible how Israelis become actually much more communal mm-hmm. in terms of community when they're out of the country. Because in, in Israel, you don't need to be a part of the community because everybody's, you know, everybody's Jewish. Yeah. So I think that's, I guess, the biggest, I think the biggest shift is that you go from communal life, because in order to live as a Jew, Judaism is a communal endeavor. Mm-hmm. And so when you're living outside, when you're brought up outside, it's all about your community. When you move here, the community has less emphasis. Mm-hmm. And so, but there's something missing in that, you know. There is really something missing in not living in a community. I think living in a community is a very healthy way to live. It's good for, you know, longevity. It's good for mental health. It's good for, you know, having that support system especially when you're an immigrant you need a support system because you come from a support system and even though everybody's Jewish you still need a support system it's not, it's not like ah, strangers are going to come and support you and so I think the biggest shift was going from communal life Jewish communal life to whoa we don't have a community here to the slow kind of upward struggle to build your own community as an immigrant in a new land Um, where seemingly you wouldn't need one, but ultimately you do. And so I guess for me, that was the biggest shift. I actually always felt very at home in Israel. I know that a lot of people coming from Western countries, it's a huge cultural shift, but you have to understand I'm Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So I'm already Sephardi, I'm half Moroccan. You know, not standing in line, having people shout at you, that's my mom and her family. I have no, I have no cultural like shock getting yeah. here. That puts for that, you know, that like people getting involved in your lives when you haven't asked them to. That people know <laughs> in your business. That's how we live. Yeah. And so being Mediterranean, Southern Mediterranean, and being kind of half Moroccan. So 
for me, there was no, there was more of a cultural shock for me going from Gibraltar to London, mm-hmm. where I lived for nine years, than it was from coming to, from London to Israel. Because Israel, for me, was going back to kind of my Mediterranean roots in a way. And of course, Morocco and Israel roots. And so that was not a cultural shock. The biggest shift was the kind of community to non-community, refining my community again. And that was definitely a journey. And I'm blessed to have found a community, which is not exactly what you would have thought, because we're Sephardi. Our community is mainly Ashkenazi. It's a very mixed community, but it's mainly Ashkenazi. Because it's Anglos, and Anglos, I mean, yeah, Ashkenazi. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's a very kind of diverse community. So it's not like I don't feel at all. Um, but 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 you would think that living in a country with a majority of people, you know, a dominant Safari, you know, stuff, that's where we go. But in fact, we found our family amongst the Anglo immigrants mm-hmm. living in the neighborhood and who our kids are friendly with their kids. Mm-hmm. And we met through gun, you know, through kindergarten and school. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the community, but it took us a long time to find it. That's so interesting because I think a lot of the time we are more aware of those differences of Sephardi, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi when we're in diaspora because, again, we're minorities. So we're a minority within a minority, and it's even harder to integrate into yeah. that community. Yeah. Um, so have you found, and kind of what it seems like you're saying, is since you went to Israel— that those pieces of your identity that made you more particular kind of faded away and you became more part of the universal Jewish culture? You could say that because that feeling of being a minority within the minority is how I felt in England. Yeah. The majority of the, of the community there is Ashkenaz. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, I mean, not that I felt, you know, I'm, I'm really not one of these parties who feel like discriminated. Yeah. I'm really not one of them. I'm, because I grew up in a majority Sephardi community. I have Absolutely. no, I have no, you know what I mean? I never felt, it was just, there was no discrimination. Yeah. Never felt discrimination as a Sephardi Jew, not at all. Um, but you do feel a little particular, like you say. So coming to Israel, I guess, is coming kind of back into the, more of the mainstream, mm-hmm. where the music is something that, or, or, the, or the food is much more integrated in the culture. Mm-hmm. Then you actually, that's what I'm saying, that being, Half Moroccan and, and, and Spanish Jew feels extremely, extremely natural, yeah. you know, to Israel. And so I guess that that is a way that I feel kind of more mainstream here mm-hmm. than I did in the UK. Um, yeah, but I've never actually thought about it, Julia. <laughs> You're making me think about things that I actually never thought about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, oh, but- I love it. I love exploring different Parts of myself that I haven't explored before. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, just from my own background, my dad's family is Ashkenazi, my mom's family is Sephardic and Mizrahi. Um, and yeah. that mix of two different family backgrounds in one person, I think is a lot more normal in Israel. I believe around 60% of people come from mixed Sephardi, oh. Ashkenazi families. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. you... Amongst, amongst the secular and the modern religious, mm. there is no longer an Ashkenazi Sephardi divide. It's Nobody even thinks about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Amongst the Haredim is where the discrimination still exists. But amongst everybody else in this country, it's all mixed. And it's great. That, oh. That's the beauty of Israel. We are the melting pot of the Jewish people. I think the first time that I came in contact with your work online was a conversation that we had about Jewish Moroccan food that we like to eat on Shabbat. I remember <laughs> you were on Twitter and you were telling a bunch of, at this point, I was just 
not involved in the Jewish nonprofit world at all. I was just a random Jewish kid on Twitter. And you were like, hi, here are my favorite Moroccan Shabbat recipes. So you're really involved on Twitter in the diaspora community in creating this connection between Israeli culture and diaspora culture. Is that intentional or did that happen by, by chance? Well, look, for me, it's very natural because I was a diaspora Jew. Mm-hmm. So, for, so I don't see myself as an Israeli reaching out to the diaspora. Yeah. I see myself as of you. I'm just yeah. here and you're there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I wrote an article recently about what it was that I went from being a diaspora Jew. I got on a plane. I went from being a concerned diaspora Jew, concerned because the second intifada had always, has already started, mm-hmm. I'm a concerned Jew the way that you are. Every time there's a war, there's a conflict. The whole of the diaspora, like, you know, they gather up and they're like, how are you? How can we help, right? So you're there, I'm here. Now, I went from being you, in other words, being a concerned diaspora Jew, getting on a plane, and all of a sudden, I'm the Jew everybody's concerned about. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And I only thought about it recently when, when the winds of anti-Semitism started spreading around the United States, mm-hmm. especially as a result of the Gaza conflict. Um, and I actually put together a solidarity mission, the first ever from Israel, Israeli leaders to New York to explore what is the community going through and how can we help. The diaspora has always been there for Israel. Mm -hmm. The diaspora was built with, um, Israel was built with diaspora um, concern, resources, talents, connections. Now that Israel is a strong country that can defend itself, we need to reach out to you and say, what do you need from us? Because what I keep telling people is that we are one. Mm -hmm. We are one people. We are one tribe. We may have disagreements like every family does, Mm -hmm. especially Jewish family, with people Mm -hmm. with strong opinions. I don't have to tell you, Julia. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) and, And the point is that when you ask me, you know, are you intentionally trying to reach out? No, I'm just having a conversation with my Jewish brothers and sisters. That's what I'm doing. You know what I mean? But it results in the diaspora. Israel connection is beautiful. But I'm not thinking I'm, you know, culturally connecting to the diaspora. I'm just talking to my peeps. That's the way I see it. That's a really wonderful point. I think that you have a really unique perspective on that because you have had both experiences, like you've said. Um, and because you have that really distinct identity where you've lived in the diaspora and now you live in Israel. What do you think diaspora Jews get wrong about Israel? And what do you think Israeli Jews get wrong about the diaspora? I, I can't bung in all the diaspora Jews into one bucket because of course you've got the diaspora Jews who are involved, um, the diaspora Jews who are, well, 90 odd percent of diaspora Jews will, will, uh, will call themselves Zionists, which is fantastic. And you've got the minority of of the diaspora Jews who've forgotten they're Jewish, sided with the enemy, and, you know, are, are kind of, uh, they're trying to, they're leaving the tent, which is, to me, actually, the most tragic thing happening at the moment. How many young people are kind of almost bullied into leaving the tent. Um, that, the thing that I, that I think Israelis get wrong about the diaspora is, is the fact of, of how, not that they get wrong about it, is that they don't understand it. They don't understand why diaspora Jews are so connected to Israel. When I first made Aliyah, people, Israelis would tell me, why did you make Aliyah? 
you could live anywhere in Europe. You know, you come from southern Spain, essentially. You lived in the UK. You have a European passport. Now my passport's gone back to being just British, but mm. <laughs> at the time it was European. <laughs> Why did you come here? Mm. Because the, 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 it's re- a lot of Israelis, and I won't say everybody, because there's a lot of you know, highly connected Israelis in the diaspora, but a lot of Israelis don't understand why somebody who is, they see it as well-off or, or, or established or not an aliyah of need, mm-hmm. like the Russian aliyah is seen as an aliyah of need, Ethiopian aliyah is seen as an aliyah of need. Anyway, Jews are running away from either for security reasons or for financial reasons mm-hmm. or for a collapse of a regime or because they couldn't get out and now they're getting out. They can understand now. They can't understand many I can't put everybody in the same bucket. Mm. Is the aliyah of choice when you have the whole world, you know, open to you. And that's one of the things that they don't get. Mm. I think that the diaspora Jews, um, I mean, I'm just about Israelis, maybe the diaspora Jews don't get the fact that Israelis are very much living uh, in a way, in a way, in an island, mm. you know, in that sense. And so I think that's kind of the disconnect. Uh, that the Israelis don't really get um, concerned for the diaspora Jews, why diaspora Jews are going to make them. Um, and diaspora Jews don't, you know, I, I, I guess they don't understand why Israelis are, don't, don't see themselves as a kind of a larger organism. Um, I, I guess that's, if I thought about that question a little bit more, maybe I'd come up with a clever answer. <laughs> that's what I can come up with. Yeah, and I mean, even looking historically, what you're talking about having this solidarity now between the diaspora and Israel because of anti-Semitism. I think that's always been a big piece of our history. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism has to bind us sometimes. A good example of that with the Eichmann trials, where Israel was defending the diaspora in a sense, even though Eichmann didn't actually attack Israel because Jews are one collective unit. Exactly. This is the land of the Jewish people. This is the government of the Jewish people. Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish people. And that's how I see my role also in the city. Mm. I don't just dress up the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, the capital of the state of Israel. I see my role as the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish people. Mm. I get up in the morning, I pinch myself. I'm like, my God, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> this, is, this is a big thing. <laughs> That really brings me to what I was going to ask as the next question, um, which is you've come into this role. Not only did you make Aliyah, but you made Aliyah and you made it really to this incredibly important role where you are, like you're saying, in the capital of the Jewish people as a deputy mayor. Uh, you had mentioned earlier in the interview that your father was in politics and that kind of brought you into it. But did you ever see yourself on this path and how did you find yourself on this path? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think that people, and you must know this, mm-hmm. people who show leadership you're already a leader from a very young age. You know what I mean? Like in when you're in like mm-hmm. when you're in elementary school, like who's the person organizing the class gift? Mm-hmm. Then when you're in high school, who's the person running for class president? Then mm-hmm. when you're in college, who's running in the we have Jewish societies in the UK? Yeah. I was always that person. Mm-hmm. I was always the person who was like, you know, always felt that I needed to be like in the middle of things. Oh, yeah. And so, and, and maybe that is a DNA thing, or maybe that's something that I saw at home. Sure. I saw stepping up to the plate, not just my father, my mother as well, mm-hmm. helping the community, helping my father. Um, and so it's what you, you I, I've got this thing that you honestly do what you know. You know, what you see at home is what you end up doing. I mean, you see that, I'm sure, when you see your parents and what you are doing and what they've done. 
Mm. It's kind of a natural thing. And so on the one hand, there was a part of me that was always very involved and was always going to be very involved. On the other hand, when I got to Israel, I didn't speak a word of Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And you, many years ago, if somebody would have told me, you're going to be making speeches in Hebrew, I would have said, you're kidding me. I mm-hmm. wish, you know, and so I, you know, and so that's kind of that journey that it happens slowly. It happens in stages, you know, 10 years ago, I decided, or 12 years ago, I decided I want to do a master's in Hebrew. And at the time, I was like, how on earth am I going to get to a master's mm-hmm. in Hebrew University? In Hebrew. Um, and so you go through that, and then you kind of jump up a level. And then you go to the next level, and then you're giving presentations. And, you're, and this morning, I was in TV in Hebrew. And I'm like, you know, these are the things that 20 years ago, I would have said, I could never be a politician. There's not speak Hebrew. And so, but it is in kind of in me to always having been being in the front of things happening, being pushing things to happen. And so that that's kind of my my double-edged answer on that. That yes and no. <laughs> that's so interesting. And one thing that I find so powerful about your role is that you're in Jerusalem, which is a city that's had this traditionally super gendered or super which has had this traditionally pretty gendered environment. And you are a powerful woman who is leading. Um, how has that impacted? Is that something you think could have happened 20 years ago? And where do you hope that this moment, this success will bring us 20 years from now? No, listen, I, I think that people forget, um, and I try and remind them all the time, that Zionism was always a very feminist moment. Yeah. I'll explain what I mean. You know, in 1897, when was the first Zionist Congress in Basel? Right? End of the 19th um, century. Mm-hmm. You know, the Zionist Congress was the first, one of the first organizations in the world where women voted, where women had the vote. Mm-hmm. That's a heritage. The modern state of Israel, that's its heritage. Mm-hmm. Now, Move forward a few years, you know, everybody talks about the fathers of Zionism. Nobody talks about the mothers of Zionism. Mm-hmm. The mothers of Zionism. The mothers of Zionism were the women who established before the state of Israel, Witzel and Hadassah. Mm-hmm. And women, the mothers of Zionism, you know, like um Enrietta Sold and, and Vera Weitzman mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know, all these kind of women, they established the social welfare system that till today holds the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. That was established before the state of Israel was born and by the women. When the men were doing their diplomatic lobbying for mm-hmm. the state of Israel, building up an army, the women were building up the hospitals, the baby well clinics, and worrying that the people, that the actual people were staying alive and staying healthy. And so Israel, the modern city of Israel has always been about as egalitarian in terms of men and women as you can get. Mm-hmm. And of course, we are the seventh or ninth country to have a, a female head of state, mm-hmm. which is an incredible legacy. Absolutely. So it's not weird to think 20 years ago, there were, there were female deputies. I'm not, I mean, there have been female deputy mayors before me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the first. There's never been a female mayor in Jerusalem. Um, Not yet. Maybe, been, maybe in a couple of years. Not yet. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> there's, been, there's been a female prime minister, of course, as mm. we said, okay. and women. You know, the chief, uh, the, the, the head of the Supreme Court, the chairwoman of the Supreme Court, 
the, the governor of the Bank of Israel has been a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, there's women in the in leading the arms of government of the state of Israel. So it's not something that we didn't see 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. let's put things, you know, in perspective. For sure. What, but, but this is the work that still needs to be done. Only 25% of the Knesset, maybe, you know, heading towards 30% mm-hmm. are women. I'm not going to be happy until we're 50%. Oh, yeah. I don't think we're celebrating until we're 50%. And unfortunately, only 19% of local government, where I'm at, are women. It's gone up from 13% to 19%. And so the, it's going in the right direction, but we're nowhere near. And I truly believe, I really believe this with everything I have, that we live in an imbalanced world because 50% of decision makers are not women. And so if 50% of, and the reason I, I say this is because I believe gender equal or gender representation in decision making at the highest levels make for better decisions. And not just for women. This is a very important point. People think that women should be in 50% of decision-making roles. People think that I want, that we advocate for that because then the women's lives are better. No, no, no. The men's lives are better when women are 50% of decision-makers. And that's something that we have to make sure that people understand. I can give you many examples, but that really is how I, what I believe. And I will continue to fight for that until that happens. And 30%, we're going to get there, hopefully in my lifetime. Um, and certainly for my daughters. I have two daughters and two sons. Mm. I will, they're all feminists because they all believe in equal rights and opportunities for men and women. Done a good um, job. It's important for the men to be feminists as well as the women. Mm-hmm. And when I say, well, even many women, when I say feminists, they go, ooh, they think it's a, a dirty word, mm-hmm. feminism. And I and, and, and you know the women in the Knesset are like, I'm not a feminist. Oh, really? Do you not believe in equal rights for men and women? Rights and opportunities for men and women? Well, of course I do. So then you're a feminist. And mm-hmm. feminism has kind of gotten this terrible name as, as a kind of men-hater, you know, women who don't shave their legs. I, I don't know what feminism means to many men, mm-hmm. but what they don't understand is that feminism means the equal rights and opportunities for men and women and so we are all and should be feminists and this world will be a better world a much better world when women are in all positions of decision making um, and at an equal level to men i could not agree more and you've used your platform to advance these causes for women and even your leadership role is a you're part of that 19%. You're a part of changing the tide, and it's incredible to see. Um, and that really brings us to the point of this podcast, which is you're such an incredible mentor. Um, and there are women who will never get the chance to meet you living around the world who will hopefully listen to this podcast and learn from what you're telling us today. And that's the point we want. We want to have this be a resource for all young people, but especially young women, to feel empowered by others who have left a mark on the world before them. What's one piece of advice that you'd want to give to those people listening to this about how to navigate the world as a Jewish woman with such strength? Okay, well, you make it sound like, first of all, I'm extremely accessible. So, you know, anybody wants to be in touch with me, go ahead. I don't yeah. care where 
from. I'm very accessible, but yes, I understand what you're saying, Julia. Look, I think the most important thing that I can say to women, I think the, the, the hardest thing for women, put it this way, I think women are very, we're very hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're very hard on ourselves. And I've learned through the years and therapy mm -hmm. <laughs> that you have to, the voice in your head cannot be a harsh voice. It has to be a kind voice. It has to be the voice of your best friend, not your harshest critic. Mm -hmm. And so if, if women leave this podcast, just understanding that the voice in your head has to be the voice of your best friend because you have to respect and love yourself for, in order for other people to respect and love you. If you don't respect yourself, nobody's going to respect you. And I say that as a Jew as well. Mm -hmm. Jews don't respect themselves. People think sometimes, and young people are bullied into thinking that the least Jewishy that they are, the more the the the, the other, the, the non-Jew, the, the 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 critic of Israel, the more they like you. And it's the it's the opposite. Mm. Learn this in the UAE. You respect yourself as a Jew. You respect your tradition. You respect your history. You respect the achievements of your people. People respect you more. Mm. And I want to say the same thing to women. Respect who you are and change that voice. It took me a long time to do this. I'm giving you something that took me 20 years to do. Mm -hmm. Change the voice in your head to the voice of your best friend, mm -hmm. not the voice of your critic or your frenemy, your best friend. And that, I think, the minute you turn that switch is the minute that you will find that life will be easier and you'll be able to encounter the world in a very different way and in a better way. I, I couldn't think of any better advice. That's incredible. And I need to hear that personally. So thank you so we much. We all do. I tell yeah. about every day. Do yeah. It's not like I've turned the switch and it stays. No, no. It's something you work on every day. The mm -hmm. older I am, I'm getting old, the easier it is. But mm -hmm. for the young women, I wish somebody would have told me that then. Well, I wish I would have done therapy earlier. <laughs> Cannot be a bigger fan of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that that's a part of a conversation now that we can have. And I think that's a big piece of it. We have to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, we have to be open. We also, I'm a very open person. Mm -hmm. I talk about my difficulties. And it's important because the minute you talk about your difficulties, other women are like, oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. You know, oh, yes. We're all normal. And, you know, the insecurities that we have and the things that we encounter, you know, are unique to us. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of other people. And that's why we have to start talking about these things. I couldn't agree more. Flora, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today and being a part of this podcast. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you and I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Thank you, Julia. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. While we were having this conversation with Flora today, I realized I entered it with a lot of my own biases painted by my experience growing up in the United States. From an American context, I think we often take for granted that feminism is in a different stage in different parts of the world. I took that for granted. I took for granted that, unlike in America, Israel has had a female head of state. I absolutely took for granted that some of the milestones we have yet to achieve here in America have happened decades ago in Israel, and vice versa. Fleur shows us what it's like to exist in a place where feminism is really complex. Yes, there has been a female head of state. 
yes, women are represented in government, but this representation is massively disproportionate. And the fights that are happening over in Israel are different from the ones happening here in the U.S. What gender equality looks like in a city like Jerusalem, which is torn between secular law and religious law, is different from what gender equality looks like in the Knesset. What gender equality looks like in a local government is different from what it looks like in a country at large. In this conversation, we spent a long time delving into how many Israelis don't quite understand the reality of living in the diaspora and dealing with anti-Semitism on a daily basis. Well, I think my own misconceptions going into this recording shows that similarly, many diaspora Jews don't quite understand the reality of living in Israel. And isn't that why we started this podcast in the first place? To share the experience of Jewish womanhood, to show its diversity, to celebrate its progress, to critique its lack thereof. You see, Flora Hassan Nahum is not just a nice Jewish girl. She is a Jewish woman who understands the complexity of Jewish womanhood because of how her life has given her the experience to learn it. And that story is one worth telling. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other Nice Jewish Girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcasts at jewishimpact.com and join us next week when we'll be speaking with journalist Avital Shiznik Goldschmidt. Nice Jewish Girls, the production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Check them out and let me know what you think. And be sure to follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.